Okay, let's go ahead and get started this morning. It's nice to have you all with us today. Uh, today, we are going to look at James, the Bishop of Jerusalem, a little bit. And we're going to take a look at uh, his life and what was happening uh, within, within his, his realm uh, you know, he was a James the Just, so he was known by the Jewish people in Jerusalem as James the Just, um, and he <clears throat> he was really seen as kind of a bulwark of the people, and you can just imagine how difficult that would have been to be a Christian in Jerusalem and uh, what that meant for people like that. Uh, because in, in that culture, uh, to be a Christian and to leave the Jewish faith uh, would have caused severe uh, socioeconomic challenges. And so you can just imagine, so what do you think he did? So he, he has his church in Jerusalem do you, do you think he would go to the temple? What do you think? He would go to the temple. Yeah. Yeah, he would, he would go and pray at, at the temple. And he, uh, the, the statements and information that are not in the scriptures but found elsewhere in early church writings, uh, said, they say that he actually... Um, went and prayed often, and he had a nickname. Does anybody know the nickname? Camel Knees. <laughs> Isn't that, that'd be great, wouldn't it, to have that nickname? Hey, here comes old Camel Knees. Yeah. Uh, the reason was because he spent so much time in prayer that he ended up with knobby knees, you know. So um, that was James. Um, he was also the brother of Jesus. And, you know, of course, the, the big question in, in the historic church, you know, is was he a half-brother or full-brother? You know, and, you know, if you get a bunch of pastors together, uh, you know, which you always try to avoid, you know. Uh, our pastors' wives can say that, you know. They really try to avoid those venues, you know. Um, but, you know, Lutheran pastors will often get into a, a tussle over, you know, whether Mary was uh, forever virgin, you know, semper virgo, or whether she had children. Um, but, you know, so James was at least half-brother, you know, if she never had children beyond uh, Jesus. But uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to jump, we are going to jump around. So we're going to be all over the place and so go to Acts chapter 15, and let's read something that has James in it. Acts 15, verses 1 to 21, and let's read it, and then we'll, we'll make our way. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, so that's the first Jerusalem council, okay? Now, remember, who, who did they think was the, the four not forerunner, but the, the one that went out ahead of the apostles and took the lead. Well, past John the Baptist, so not a forerunner, but of the apostles after Jesus' death and resurrection. Who? who? Peter. Yeah. You think about Peter, the rock, right? And that he would be the guy that would, that would go ahead and lead everybody forward. And he did for a while, but at some point, James becomes this, 
kind of the head of the church, it seems. And you see this because of the Jerusalem Council, because here they are, they're all gathered together to talk about these issues. And the circumcision issue was a big issue uh, between Jews and Gentiles. And it's James that says, here's what we do. And they all listen to him. Isn't it interesting? So you think about this. So James is an interesting figure because if you were to look at uh, John chapter 7, verse 5, it, John says Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. So there was an early time where they just didn't, they weren't following Jesus. I mean, you can imagine, right? If Jesus is your half-brother, you know, what that would have been like. So then if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, just take a quick look here. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians And it's a beautiful text. It starts off at verse 1. For I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed to you and that which you received and in which you stand and by which you were being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles." Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So notice how James is singled out. That is important. The fact that he's singled out by Paul in this means that to Paul, James was a significant figure in the church, right? You always, you never forget the people that are important, right? And so that's part of what's going on here. You know, we think about Paul and we spend more time reflecting on Paul because he wrote most of the New Testament. He had this conversion. He often is like a Luther kind of a figure because he's bold. And he, but he had to be kind of careful um, because, because of his boldness, uh, he had to really work on diplomacy. And there's a passage, so go to Galatians 2. So part of what I want to do today is I want to look at the life of James, but I also want to help give you a picture of what the church looked like because it was so, you know, it's 
the church of God. But in terms of people, you're still dealing with the human, the human relationships and the human aspects. And it's just the way it is. And so in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us a little something about his encounter. So starting at the first verse, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. So he's going to Jerusalem, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when, and here it is, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. Now, isn't that interesting? He had to go to Jerusalem to Peter, James, and John to get the right hand of fellowship. Otherwise, it would have been, he, would have, he, he says, I would have run in vain. Now, what's interesting about this is in the Greek, um, he says, James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, the word for seemed is, uh, it means a mirage. Isn't that interesting? So what they seemed, they appeared to be pillars, but what he's, what he's kind of saying a little bit is, it's nothing to me, but I had to go and get the right hand of fellowship. Um, this word is dakeo in Greek, and it's the, have you, has anybody ever heard of the docetists? If you do, I'm really impressed. <laughs> okay, so the, do, how about Gnostics? Okay, all right, so Gnostic is like a, it's like a broad blanket term. So like Protestant, okay? And then a docetist would be a, a form of Gnosticism. And a docetist said that Jesus only appeared to suffer on the cross. 
So, so what they said was like, the way we would say it today is like, Jesus was a hologram, you know, just sort of like this apparition that wasn't really there at the time of the suffering and death of Christ. So that's how they got their name Docetists, because they said that Christ's suffering was just a mirage. It wasn't true. And so this word, dakeo, is what he uses. So, you know, you can see just a little bit of, um, you can see just a little bit of contention. But yet, as we go through the scriptures in the New Testament, they had a, a great respect for one another. Now, James, we know this is James the just, the brother of Jesus, because James, son of Zebedee, was martyred before that, like 10 years or something before that. So we know this is James the just, okay? But as we look at this text and we look at what's going on here, Paul still has to make things good with, with Jerusalem and with the Jerusalem church. Now, think about the work that James did in that context in Jerusalem. To, uh, to be able to get by and sell food and to deal with people, he had to go to the temple and pray. And that was, as you said, Marilyn, that's the place where he would go and he would talk to people. And they had the Old Testament, so that was an advantage. So what he would do was he would bring Jesus into it, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this is why I've, one of the reasons I've got the board out today is this is a kind of, we call it the Lutheran cones, and it's, it's the scriptures and how we look at the scriptures. So the first cone is the Old Testament, and then, can everybody see this? The first cone is the Old Testament, and then the other cone is the New Testament, and in the center is the life of Jesus. And so the Christian way of looking at the scriptures is all of the Old Testament points to Christ. And so this is the interpretive lens. So if you want to understand the Old Testament, you read it through the cross, through the life of Jesus. And then the New Testament, which was written after the life of Jesus, is all pointing back to the life of Christ. So if you want to understand that, you have to look back to Jesus. And part of what I'm going to do with this, this theme that we're doing about early Christian devotion and mission is look at some of the Greek concepts that are in the New Testament that we find in the language of the apostles, but then what we find in the words of Jesus. So, for example, go to the end of the, go to the, the, would be the one, two, three, the third page of the handout. And what we have here is Psalm 67. 
in the Old Testament, you had a lot of stuff going on because you have the, the laws of Moses, then you have the prophets speaking, and you have the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the, of the church, prayer book of the synagogue, prayer book of the temple. And Psalm 67 is what is, is, is in what we call chiastic structure. And I put it into structure for you. And so on page three is the English. On page four is the Greek from the Septuagint. The way the chiastic structure works is the first verse coincides with the last verse. And then the second, to, the second verse coincides with the second to last verse. And so I did the color coding for you so you can see it. And so, the, so in chiastic structure, the point is the middle verse. Okay? Yes? What, what exactly is chiastic? I mean, I'm kind of stupid here, but what is chiastic? Well, it's a, it's a poetic structure in Hebrew, and it's, it's just simply just that, a poetic way of, of looking at themes. And it's like becomes a part of a bigger discussion because even the, the Psalms and the ordering of the Psalms and like Psalm 119, um, it's, it's just a way of like poetically seeing beauty. Maybe that'd be a good way of, of doing it, okay? Or saying it. And so... It starts off, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And then look at the last verse, verse 7. God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. And you can see then verse 2 and verse 6 are saying very much the same thing. Verse 3 and verse 5 are saying exactly the same thing. But then look at verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Now, the Jewish people were praying that psalm for a myriad of time, right? And all the while, nations is Gentiles. It includes everybody. So, at, so, Jesus, here's a question for you. Why did Jesus go specifically to James in 1 Corinthians 15? Why do you think? What's that? He was the head of the church. Well, not yet, though, because it seems as though initially, like at the time of the resurrection, James was not convinced. So if you have a brother or a sister that doesn't believe, you want to go right to them, right? Specifically. So Jesus goes right to James and he talks to him. And James has all this Old Testament in his head, right? So Jesus supplies the missing link. I am the content of, this, of the Old Testament. It's just like the Emmaus Road. There's those two disciples walking along the road 
And Jesus seizes their eyes. In Greek, he literally seizes their eyes and he's preaching into their ears. Well, at that point, they only have the Old Testament. And so what's he preaching? He's himself showing them the Old Testament. And it's so you can just imagine this is what happened with Jesus and James. He's saying, look, remember this, remember that. Now see what I did. And so it all starts to make sense. And so here it is. Psalm 67 is including the Gentiles in the drawing into the, in, into, the, into the church. And yet all these Jewish people were praying this psalm for, for ages. But, you know, it's still a struggle because they had the circumcision issue and, you know, meat strangled and blood in the meat and all these other different things. The reason I give you the Greek is because the word gracious in verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us. The word in Greek is oiktiresai. And that word is used in different places in the New Testament. So go to Luke 6.36. So Jesus is talking in Luke 6 here about love for enemies. And we could get a little bit of context, but I don't want to go too far because there's so much to talk about. But in Luke 6, he says, "If you so start at verse 32, I guess. Well, no, let's go to 27, okay? So it says, I know, this is a problem. Like, where do you stop and where do you start? Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Okay, now this is striking to me because, so the word in Greek, I put it there, it's, it's in verse 1 of, of Psalm 67. I also put it in blue oiktiresai or oiktirmoi. Now, oik is the root word for house or dwelling. Okay, so 
mercy, to be merciful, means that God dwells with his people. Does that sound familiar? I mean, you hear this language with Jesus all the time. Jesus is the substance, then, of this word. And as you, as you think, so as you think about this, Jesus takes a seat with the people of the world, with the nations. So Psalm 67, may God be merciful to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So it's the visitation of the Lord upon his people. And it's his visitation then upon the Gentiles too. That's, that's the sense of Psalm 67. And now you have Jesus talking about it in terms of loving your enemies, doing good to others. And let me see here. So like in verse 33... Hmm. Well, that is interesting. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? That, and so see, the thing here is, so the word for good is, is a word that it comes from Jesus. Remember I talked about this before, that when the rich young man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, he, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? That's the word for good that is reserved for God. And so what this is implying is Jesus is saying that you, you know, do good for others, but do it in such a way that they can see your father in heaven. It's that kind of thing, right? Because in the ancient world, and this, I'll talk more about this. But this gets to um, my dissertation. There were three things that were important in the Greek world for a teacher. And I'll put it right here. Okay. So there were three things that were important for someone who taught holy teachings. Or even like in, for Aristotle, for the Greeks to be a a good philosopher, there was the word and then passion to move move someone to uh, listen or to adopt something and then the conduct of the speaker. And so this comes out, Jesus is the preeminent figure that would appeal to all the world to Jews and Gentiles alike. So even the Gentiles, because Aristotle, right, and Plato, they were in the B.C. period. So they were before Jesus. So they know all this Greek stuff. The Gentiles do. And so when they hear about Jesus, there's, they're looking for the logos, the pathos, and the ethos, or ethos, right? And... So what's happening here is Jesus is teaching his disciples the way to live. And 
it's not just, so if you just have the word, if you just go and you tell people, here's what you need to believe, now do it, and I'm done, you know, that's not very good. Um, but there, you, you have all these, com- these three components to life. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, you know, James himself had to have been very careful in Jerusalem. Uh, he had to be humble and meek, in a sense, and choose his words carefully and do a lot of listening. And he was seen, even by the Jewish people, as very loving. So the conduct part was very much alive in James. You know, even all the, you know, Eusebius wrote an early church history and, you know, he speaks very highly of James. Uh, If you've ever heard of Jerome, an early church father, same thing. And so I have this quick story. Remember I told you I'll tell you stories sometimes. So Stacy and I love Indian food. Does anybody here love Indian food, by the way? Okay, yeah, I, I, crave, I crave Indian food, yeah, and it's, so we would always go in, in Shearville over in Indiana, there was this place, and they had a buffet, and Stacy and I would go a couple of times a month, and there were all these Indians, and I would often wear my collar, and they started to get to know us, and there were Hindus, and then there were also Sikhs. And so anyway, they started to uh, talk to us a lot. and We would talk to them. But I didn't really talk about the faith. Because, you know, for one thing, I didn't know a lot about Hindus or Sikhs. I knew just a real little bit, but that was it. And so I would just listen. And, and then this one gentleman who was an Indian, and he was a Christian, and he was working there. And he would always ask me, after I ate, if I would go down the hall and give him a blessing. And so I would always go down and trace the cross on his forehead and give him a blessing. And so in the course of time, the cook and then the gal that ran the desk got married. (laughs) Okay? And they were Sikhs. And I'm like, I don't know what a Sikh is. I got I to gotta look into this a little bit. Does anybody know what a, about Sikhs? Yeah, they were the, yeah, the turban. And they, they have different things like a comb and a little dagger and different things that the male wears. Well, so anyway, this young lady then, she gets pregnant. They get married and then a couple months later she's pregnant. And as it's getting closer, she's getting really nervous. And she says to me, "Um, could you pray for me? Because I'm worried about going into the hospital and uh, I'm worried about the birth and the delivery. And I said, I'll pray for you. And I said, I'll even come to the hospital and see you if you would like me to. And she said, that would be great. And so I gave her my number. And so... The birth went great, and so she didn't need to call me, so I never heard from her. And then she, like, I don't know how long it was, maybe two months later, she's back to work, 
And she says, um, everything went fine. And we brought her a little gift, you know, a little onesie for the baby. And she loved that. Like to her, that was an amazing thing. And so she says to us, she says, um, we would like to have you come over to our house and we will cook for you. And we're like, ooh, <laughs> you know, I'm all in for this. Stacy was too. And so we go, and this to me, like, so part of my problem, this is maybe confession of sins, I don't know, but I kind of relate to uh, the uh, comedy of Seinfeld. <laughs> so I see my life in Seinfeld manuscripts, you know. And so anyway, we, so her mother was here from India and she's taking care of the baby while they work at the restaurant. So we come to the door and we knock on the door and her mother comes to the door and her mother knows zero English and we know zero what, whatever that is that they speak. And so um, we're like, and this was the Seinfeld part. We're like, hello, hello. <laughs> and then she gives a motion to come in. And so we come in and we sit down in this living room. And so the gal's name, the, the, young, the young lady's name with the baby, is, was, her name's Ravneet. So she was upstairs taking care of the baby. And so the, the, old, the mother sits down on the couch and we sit down on the other couch. And it literally, we like looked at each other. We're like, hello, hello. And then she points up and then, you know, and it was, it was hilarious. And, but so culturally, I, I learned, Stacy and I learned something and this is this kind of gets to the idea of uh, this whole notion of circumcision versus no circumcision. These deep cultural things. So what happened was, and I learned we learned this afterwards. If there is a big celebration like a birth in the family among Sikhs, they invite people over and they have a meal, and they first bring out sweets. And these sweets were these cubes, and they were sweet. I mean, they were like really sweet. And um, I'm more of a salty person than a sweet person, so, you know, a little bit goes a long way for me with sweets. And so we, we just kind of ate a little bit, Right. And then we were done, and there were still some on this tray. And the, the, the old mother comes in, and she looks, you know, and she looks at the sweets, and she looks at us, and she shakes her head and goes back in. And then, and then she starts bringing out the real, the, the food, the main course. And I mean, she just kept bringing it out and bringing it out, and we're just, oh, so good. But the, the, the old lady was really put off because we didn't eat all the sweets. Because in a, in a Sikh celebration, you eat all the sweets. 
Okay. In her purse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so we learned this from Ravneet. And Ravneet, she's been in America for quite some time. So she's like, don't worry about it. It's okay. You know. <laughs> but what, so, so what was interesting though, and this, this does get to um, my dissertation topic called protreptics. And protreptics, I'll put it here. So protreptics is trying to find common ground. So this was done by Aristotle and Plato and Isocrates and and many others. So that's BC time, right? So the New Testament people did understand the notion of protreptics. And what it means, so protreptics, fancy word, it just literally means to turn someone to a higher art of living. Okay? To turn someone towards a new way of living. And you look for common ground. So what happened was, as we were sitting in the the house with the, the, the nice Sikh folks, I noticed that there were two big portraits, one in another room and one in the room that we were in, of these gurus. But there were only two. And I knew there were 10. In the course of history, Sikh history, there were 10 gurus. And I said, why do you only have two gurus pictured? And she says, that one in there is the first guru. And this one right here is the last guru. And I said, okay. I said, what happened then after the 10th guru? Now what? Now what? Right? And she said, well, the gu- now think about this. The, so... The first guru was in the 1400s. The last guru was in the 1700s. That's late, right? So I said, um, what was significant about the gurus? Well, they were in the embodiment of the word of God. And you would say, that sounds like, yeah, that sounds like Jesus. So the word, the logos, and I said, what, what happened after the 10th guru then? Because if that's the embodiment of the word of God, what, what of that? And she says, well, after the 10th guru, they put it all down in sacred scriptures. And I said, that's kind of like Christianity in the church, right? Because you have... Jesus, who is the embodiment. He is the Logos incarnate, right? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, the word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's this Word, by the way, in the Enhe Logos, okay? And so I said to her, you know, this is, this is exactly how it was, is with the church. But we had one, we had Jesus, who is God. And then after his suffering, death, and resurrection, he has the apostles. 
and then the apostles put it down in writing. And so what was happening there was finding common ground. So just on a practical level, I mean, in a way, I was, it was, I was a little nervous because I have not spent that much time with Sikhs. But it was, it was so interesting to me how we still, even though we had different religions, I could find some common ground. And so the idea in this is to, the, the whole idea of this, trying to find common ground and then to draw people back to Jesus is to take, to find the truth in someone else's teaching and reattach it to God so that God will be glorified. So see, that's the thing. It's always to glorify God. And then you find the fullness. But this is too then what it is to be merciful. So to get back to the last page of of our handout, Jesus is saying, be merciful. And this word, oiktirmoi, since it has the the root word is oik, you have this sense of house. So this kind of mercy is to sit with a person, to make a dwelling and to spend time, to establish relationship. And it's a deep mercy, it's an enduring mercy, it's um, words but more than words, it's presence. And you know, that is so important because with people in the world and with the trials and chances of life, sometimes there just aren't enough words, right? Uh, sometimes people are perplexed or struggling and the holy just needs to dwell, right? just to be in the holy and to listen and to let the Lord move things into place. So go to James chapter five. So now we go to, and we'll get to this at some point. We'll, we'll try to work through James because it is a fascinating epistle. So then James chapter 5, start with verse 7. Let me get my Greek text here. Oh, this is fantastic. So, okay. Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, 
the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So a couple of things there. First, at verse 7, the Greek word for this is uh, macrothemia. And this is really an important word for the Christian life. Now, what it means is, so you don't need to know Greek, but it's just kind of cool to see this. So this part right here, these are like two words. So this right here it deals with passions. And this word is sometimes used for anger. Demia. You know, you're roused up. And this word, so like you think about macroeconomics and microeconomics, right? So microeconomics is really small and fine-tuned. Macroeconomics covers the spectrum. This is macro. So when he says be patient, what he's saying is take your anger, your frustration, your struggles, and stretch them out. Isn't that interesting? So what happens spiritually is if you take whatever angst you have, whatever the passion and anger or whatever perplexity, whatever's frust- you know, whatever's going on, and if you can take a step back and stretch it out, then it changes in character. Now, how do we stretch it out? That's the key, right? Because you're bound up and you're frustrated and you know action is where we like to go with this kind of thing but it's to sit it goes along with this word for merciful where you sit in the holy you literally take let god you take a seat you let god take a seat in the midst of your life and where you are and you let the scriptures speak, let, let God speak to you. You muse upon the crucifix. And what happens is, through the scriptures, through musing upon the crucifix, through quiet, Jesus and the Holy Spirit start to change the contours of what you're dealing with. And this comes up in different places in the scriptures, like in Proverbs. Um, the, how does that go? It's like um, the, prudent, the prudent see danger and they hide themselves, but the simple uh, 
pass on and suffer for it or something, you know, it's something like that. But the idea is that part of godly wisdom is to take a step back when things are happening and you kind of look around and you go, okay, this is what the Lord says. Now I, I watch and I wait. Yes, Marilyn. It makes me think of, of the Sabbath. <clears throat> the, the description of the Sabbath. I've never put that together. But it, yeah, she said it, it's like putting the Sabbath. You know, it's a time to kind of sit and reflect. And so then Jesus is our Sabbath. And so now we, like Hebrews says, we find our rest in Jesus. And so, he, so James is giving us some holy, some holy reflection here. So he says in verse 11, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And that's the word macrothemia. And then in, um, or no, it's not. I'm sorry, it's not. It's a different word. But, Then he says, uh, you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what James is doing is, so you think about this. James sits down to write his epistle and he's telling us about the things he's learned from Jesus. He's giving it to the church for our own edification And I'm sure a lot of what he's saying is reflective of his own experiences in Jerusalem. Because it must have been frustrating. It must have been very difficult. And how did his life end? Did he live to be an old man and die in his bed? No. There was, um, you had the Roman and Jewish struggle going on. And the Romans were always quick to stamp out political movements. If as long as everybody was calm and no problems, the Romans were okay. But as soon as things started getting a little hot, the Romans would come in with force. And so as a result, the Jewish leaders would always try to quell radical groups so like the zealots they were always like we got to get get these guys out of here before they cause too much trouble Um, same thing then at the time of james we think he was martyred in 62 a.d and he the context was there was an uprising of jewish messianism where they were looking for a Messiah that was going to be the kingpin, the military, you know, take control and save things. And James was teaching about the Messiah. You know, Old Testament language, teaching about the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. And there was uh, the proconsul, the Roman proconsul had died in office. So it took five weeks to get the the that back to where it needed to go and then five weeks to get a new proconsul in there. So within that period, somebody took over in the interim and said, we're just going to take care of James right now. 
And they did. And so they stoned him to death. And so, you know, we have a, a feast, you know, a, a saint's day where we observe James the just. And, um, but what we see in James, and, and to, to read the book of James would be, would be very good, um, but we see uh, someone caught in a, an interesting and difficult context, and he was merciful and uh, calm and patient, uh, and the, the mercies of Christ, which he, which he encourages us, uh, was alive in, in his work. And, and he was well-respected even by Paul. Uh, you know, this handout has a lot more information that you can, that you can look through and you can see different times where, where Paul goes to Jerusalem and uh, everything in between. Does anybody have any questions or comments about anything? Yes. Sir. Yes. I, I always thought that Peter had the upper hand on this question of, of the Gentiles because of the vision the Lord gave him. Yeah. Where these other guys, they, they had a really, really instructed... They did. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, at one point, Peter gets caught in the circumcision issue. And I think that was um, maybe not so good. And some, some New Testament scholars say that that might have been the shifting point just a little bit between Peter and James. And then the Jerusalem church was the hub. It was always the hub. And, you know, you even see in different places in the New Testament where, well, like in Galatians 2 that we read, where uh, pa Paul was encouraged and exhorted to remember the poor in Jerusalem. So there is always this focus back to the, the church in Jerusalem because that was, the, that was the place. Yeah. And so I think it was two things. I think it might have been Peter waffling a little bit on the circumcision issue and then just the importance of the Jerusalem church. Yeah, a good, good thought. Yeah, yes. Oftentimes, when you are in a head position like this, you have to make a choice between what's prudent for today and makes you, you know, the person that everybody wants to love yeah. versus what's prudent for the future and not necessarily makes you the good guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and the whole issue between... You know, you could kind of see the human dynamics that between the, the circumcision issue, you still had these, you know, Paul's very strong, his language is very strong that we don't need circumcision. But yet at the same time, he has Timothy circumcised, you know? So, you know, there's politics going on throughout in this. It's very interesting because uh, you still have the human dynamic. But what you see, though is uh, that at the end of it, they all, they all loved each other and, uh, and had respect for one another. Yeah. Any other? Yes. Uh, did Peter take over the Jerusalem church after James was? So, good question. So, 62, 62 AD, 
So, so let's, he's martyred in 62 AD, James is. The Romans come in and surround Jerusalem in 66 AD. And between 66 and 70 AD, the place is besieged. The church in Rome, or the church in Jerusalem scattered and went to Pella, for example, and to other places. And some of the Jewish people said, so one of the accounts of, of James at his martyrdom as they're stoning him, he was praying just like Stephen, just like Jesus, praying for his murderers. And uh, one Jew says, one very spiritual Jew says, stop, he's praying for his, his killers. And then somebody came with a club and finished him off. And they, the Jewish people said, they stopped the prayers of James and that ushered in the coming of the Romans. And the church left. And, you know, you see that, you know, you see this a little bit like Luther, he has this famous statement where, uh, where he says to the, the, council, the council in Germany, he says, uh, the gospel is like a good rain shower. It comes and then it passes and when it's gone, it's gone. And, you know, he says, do not, do not let it pass. And in some ways, it's kind of like that's what happened there at that time. You know, they, they stopped the, the voice of, of the, the bishop and the evangelist, and so the gospel was stopped. But it went to other places. And so that's the encouragement that the Holy Spirit always does his work uh, in your lives and in the, the life of the church. Yeah. Any other, any other questions? Okay, so let's close with the collect and uh, then we'll, we'll end with the benediction. Let us pray. O oh Lord, keep your family, the church, continually in the true faith that relying on the hope of your heavenly grace, we may ever be defended by your mighty power. Through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.